So I have a bit of a confession this morning. Um, many of you know that um, last Sunday I mentioned that we were driving home and I was listening to the Notre Dame game in the car and was distraught by the loss. Um, and then last night, I couldn't bear to do it two weeks in a row, so I went to bed and missed what apparently was a great fourth and 16 run for 17 yards and then a 30-yard run for a touchdown. So that's my confession. Notre Dame did win and beat Duke. I know you don't care, but I care. So there you go. That's how that works. But I was thinking about how there are things, like you could go back, if you could go back to what's comfortable, like sitting and watching end of close games, not comfortable, by the way. But if there are things in our life that we could go back to or we do go back to them because they are comfortable for us. We know they're not the best thing for us, but we keep going back to them because they're easy. There's comfort in them. Like we know the routine. So here's just an example that maybe is true for you, maybe not. So let's say you go to your doctor and the doctor says, hey, you've got some numbers I'm concerned about, right? right? Your, your sugar is too high. You know, we just want to watch that. So I, I want you to do a couple things. Your heart, heart's a little off. We, you know, we, we need to get some help here. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to watch your diet, right? So you're going to need a little, little stricter diet and I want you to increase your exercise, you're like, okay, I mean, that's what almost doctor tells almost all of us, right? Like, so, so if you'll do these two things, I think it'd be beneficial for you. And so you, you decide you're going to take the doctor's advice seriously. And so you go even meet with a dietitian, and you like start cooking well and watching what you eat and taking, being serious about it. And then you're like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to exercise. I'm going to actually get a trainer. I'm going to, I'm going to have someone help me with this. And so you, you're doing that and you're doing really well. And so a few weeks later, you're like, you know what, I, I feel better. My body feels better. You know, I'm, I'm able to rest more. I don't feel sluggish. You know, like, I, I mean, this is really good. Like, I, I just feel good. Um, and then something stressful happens in life. Whether it's at home with your family or your job. And then you, you head towards the gym and you're like, you know what? I'm kind of tired. I think I'm just going to skip today. Like, well, that's not the end of the world. Skip a session gym. Not, not too bad. And you stop and you pick up a pizza and a carton of ice cream on the way home. And you're like... Again, no judgment for me, by the way. <laughs> Sounds like a good day. Um, and the next day, you're like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to skip this exercise thing again, and I'm going to pick up two pizzas and two cartons of ice cream. And if you keep going down that road a few weeks later, all that good work that you did on the front end, you're going to go like, you know, I know if I watch what I ate and I exercise more, I would feel better. But it's just not worth the sacrifice. It isn't, it's just not worth it to me. I don't care enough to do it. And so we know, you know, rather than going home and watching Netflix, you'd be better served to just exercise for 30 minutes or whatever it is. But we choose what was comfortable to us because it didn't feel like it was worth it. Or we made a decision that wasn't worth it. Now we know in our mind that it was the right thing to do. And we know it actually led to better like results. But I'm still not going to do it because I just don't like it. And I want to go back to what's comfortable and what I know. This is true when it comes to that kind of thing, but it's true in so many aspects of our life. In fact, what we find in the scriptures, it was true for the people of Israel as well. We've been looking at the story, the journey of God's people through the wilderness and through the kind of Exodus story. We began with the story of Abraham, and Abraham was called by God to be a blessed people, to bless the world, right? Not just to be their own people by themselves, but to bless the world. And then there's Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and Jacob has these sons, and one son ends up getting sold into slavery, and he finds himself in Egypt, and next thing you know, all of Israel comes to Egypt, and Joseph is the savior that saves all the people, but then he decides he really likes Pharaoh's system, and he finds himself kind of stuck in Pharaoh's system, and then you fast forward, and those same people who had this influence are now enslaved. They're slaves. 
And Moses, last week we talked about how Moses was called, and there's this moment where he has this kind of sacred, holy moment with God, and this bush is burning but doesn't burn up, and God calls him, and Moses is like, yeah, I left that place. God, I, I can't speak well. I don't do lots of things well. You don't want me. You want someone else. And God's like, no, I want you. And he's like, hey, I tell you what, God, send someone else. You can have my brother Aaron. He'll be great. And he's like, no, no, I want you. And was like, okay, fine. So Moses, who had left as a murderer, being chased out of town, finds himself heading back to Egypt to be the one God says he's going to lead his people to freedom. And that's the story we pick up again today. And so we read this passage last week, and we're going to read it again. By the way, if you like Bible text and you're like, oh, I wish I read more, today's a really good day for you. If you're like, oh, I hate when we read from the Bible, today's a bad day for you. Sorry. Um, but here's what we find from Exodus chapter 2. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Moses has this back and forth with God about, God, I don't really want to do this. And God's like, no, no, you'll be great. And so eventually he agrees to go back. But God has heard the cry of his people who are oppressed and enslaved. And he's not ignorant to it. He's not just sitting silent. He's at work redeeming and restoring his people who are broken. And so Moses and his brother Aaron, they head back to Pharaoh. They head back to Egypt. They head back to try to set the people who were captive free. And here's what we find in the text from chapter 5 of Exodus. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. I'm going to pause for a second. Did you catch the words of Pharaoh? Who is the Lord? And he goes on to say, I don't know the Lord. And so you're like, why are you stopping in that line right there? Because now we have this moment where Moses and Aaron get to be the opportunity to share who God is to Pharaoh. And if I were to fast forward to our day today, there are many people who are never going to have an encounter with Jesus unless it's an encounter with you. I know you're like, wait, did you just say that I'm supposed to be Jesus to people? Yes, I did. I think for you and I, we may be the only Jesus some people see. So how we impact others, how we love others, how we treat other people, how we speak about who God is, has significant impact in the world around us. So we either do that really well or really poorly. But we, if we say we're a follower of Jesus, we show people an image of who God is or isn't by how we live and speak and act and talk to one another. Anyway, back to the text. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention 
to lies. Pharaoh is not going to listen to Moses. Why? Well, Pharaoh sees himself as a god. He is the divine manifestation of God in his world. You will worship me. You will not worship another god. In fact, if you think your god's so great, here's what I say. Go make bricks without straw. Pharaoh's god. I'm god. Your god is not. Because in Pharaoh's economy, he sees people as objects. They're means to an end. They are his people to do as he sees fit, to build his kingdom, to build his empire. They are not people to do what they want, to worship their own gods or have their own rights or whatever it is they're supposed to have. They're not people created in the divine image. They are his. And you're like, man, that Pharaoh, he's pretty awful. But what if in some ways we're kind of like Pharaoh? I mean, maybe you think you're God. That's kind of weird if you do. But maybe you think you're God by how we act. Here's what I mean. For Pharaoh, people are a means to an end. How many times have we been dismissive or rude or disparaging to a waiter or waitress? How many times do we act disgruntled to the person at the checkout lane and we don't make eye contact with them, we don't talk to them because they're just doing their job. It's just their job. They should do it. How many times are we short with people because they're performing a service of some kind and we, we just, you know, they're just them. We don't see them as people who are created the image of God. They're just to fulfill what we desire. But here's the reality for followers of Jesus. People are not means to an end. They are the ends themselves. And that should matter for us. We should live in such a way that we don't look like Pharaoh. That we see people as a means to an end, but we see people as reflected of the divine image of God. In fact, that's what we'll look at next week a little bit as we look about what we call the Sinai Covenant or the Ten Commandments. Right, the first four are all about what's it look like to worship God, and the last four, or, or last six, I'm sorry, are all about what's it look like to love people. So how does it look like to love God and to love people? That's the whole center of what those ten things are about. And so back to Pharaoh who says to the people who doesn't care about them, and he doesn't care about God, he says, I want you to make bricks without straw. Not without straw. I want you to go get your own straw. I'm not giving it to you anymore. I want you to make bricks with straw. But you find your own straw. Good luck. Apparently you're lazy. You, don't have, you have too much time on your hands. In fact, you can still go to Egypt today, and there's a picture of what bricks made with straw actually look like. You can go find them. In fact, this is from right outside of one of the pyramids in Egypt. Um, not the ones you know about, like one of the real small, crappy ones that's falling apart. But it's one of those, right? But these are bricks with straw, and you can see the straw in the bricks. And so you can begin to understand, oftentimes, like stories in, from the scriptures, they're happening in actual places with actual people, and we could look at them and go, huh, they really did make bricks with straw. Didn't know you did that. There you go. But here's why I think that matters. Our tendency is to get mad at someone who's trying to help us. Like, so we get mad at Moses and Aaron because what they want from us is going to require sacrifice and surrender for us to, to receive what God has for us. But there's that hard time in the middle. Have you noticed when you really want to change something? That, that when you're beginning to change the habit or the whatever it is that you're wanting to change in your life, that there's that season where it's just really, really difficult. It's not a pattern of your life yet. And you're like, oh, this is hard. Of course, sacrifice me if you get up a little earlier or stay up a little later, whatever it might be. But you don't like it. And so the people grumble against Moses and Aaron. But, because here's what's true for most of us. Any kind of like, great change in our life usually requires some kind of sacrifice on the way. And here's what we'd say for us, even in terms of our spiritual lives. True transformation requires sacrifice. True transformation requires sacrifice. We'd love to say, hey, 
just love Jesus, you don't have to change anything in your life, everything will be awesome. But that's just not really true. We have to learn to live a little bit differently. There are some things that we have to maybe give up or pick up or whatever it might be. And so there's some sacrifice that happens. But what you find, just like when you make this shift in your diet and your exercise, like you feel better. There's a transformation in who we are. I have changed, and it's a really good thing. But that in-between time, like we're not so sure about that. And here's what we find in the text from Exodus chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go because of my mighty hand. He will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. God hears the cries of his people. And he longs to redeem them. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, Hey, Pharaoh, let God's people go. Pharaoh says no. It's kind of this give him back and forth over and over again. And so last week I had someone stop me after the service and go, hey, I've got a question. Why does Pharaoh not have a name? Right? We know the name of two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, right? We talked about them last week, kind of a cool story. Um, and you're like, we know their names. Why do we not know the name of Pharaoh? And I said, well, here's the reality. What we've come to believe over time is that most scholars would agree that this has been written during the time of what we'd call the Babylonian exile, when the kingdom of Israel had been split into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They find themselves in captivity in Babylon, and they're looking back, writing their story out for one another. It's been kind of an oral tradition passed along. And so Pharaoh doesn't get a name because Pharaoh represents every leader of every empire in all of human history. He's just a Pharaoh just an emperor. He's just a king. Just a leader. And the system of Egypt, it's oppressive, and it's weighty, and it messes people up, and it treats them as objects. And so it's, it gets a name because it's, a, it's Egypt. But it's also why if you were to fast forward in the New Testament, why you go in the book of Revelation, it's why when the people are, are captive to the Romans, they'd say, hey, they compare the Romans to the Babylonians. So you name the empire previously that held you captive to the empire in which you are in captivity. Because if you talk about the one you're actually captive to, it's not going to go real well for you. And so he's saying this, Pharaoh doesn't get a name. The Lord gets a name, the I am who I am. The one who always was, the Lord, right? We talk about Jesus later, but he gets a name. But Pharaoh doesn't because Pharaohs, all, Pharaohs are all the same. It doesn't matter which Pharaoh it is, they all function the same. 
And so what we begin to see is this, that Pharaoh wants to live out from this perspective in which he believes he is God, he is overall, he is in charge. And so he and Moses have this back and forth. Moses says to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no, over and over again. And so we begin to see these plagues that begin to happen among the people. First, there's water turned to blood. And so Pharaoh's like, ooh, this is not good. Like, right, we need water. It's kind of a life source. And then what we find happens next is this, that Pharaoh's own magicians turn water to blood. And Pharaoh's like, well, not that impressive, Moses. Next, we see this scene where there's frogs coming up out of the Nile River, and they're everywhere. And Pharaoh's like, okay, Moses, let's stop this. But wait, my magicians can do that too. Well, Moses, your God's not that impressive. See, my magicians can do it too. And the third plague is this plague of gnats. But by the way, that's bugs and frogs. Gross, right? Um, so, so the gnats come up from the sand. Right? In other words, God makes more gnats from the sand. Guess what? Pharaoh's magicians can't create. They can replicate some things, but they cannot create. Only God can do that. And we go from gnats to flies to livestock that's diseased to boils to hail to locusts to darkness. And in all these, Pharaoh has a hard heart. When it gets tough, he says, okay, Moses, we'll let God's people go. And then Moses says, okay. Stops the plague. He goes, okay, Pharaoh's like, I just changed my mind. I'm just messing with you, man. You guys are still slaves. You're staying here. And then God comes to Moses and he says, hey, I want you to do a new thing. We're going to call it Passover. You're going to slaughter an animal. You're going to put the blood over the doorpost of your home. You're going to eat a meal standing up because you're going to be ready to go. You're going to leave nothing for the next day. You're going to be ready to go. And when the angel passes over, the people of God will be freed and the people of who are Egyptian, will lose their firstborn. And it is this awful scene in which the firstborn of all the Egyptians dies. And Pharaoh comes to them and he says, okay, maybe you're God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, maybe he really is God. Get out of my country, leave. You can go on your way. In fact, the text says this, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. That last line is kind of crazy, by the way, right? Pharaoh, who is God. Gods don't need to be blessed by anyone because they're God. But what Pharaoh acknowledges here is there is another God who's above me because I can't do what he has done. And so will you and your God, will you bless me as you go? In the ancient world, the person who would give the blessing was always of a higher position than the person who would receive the blessing, right? So you would bless your children, you would bless others because you were in position of authority over them. And so what Pharaoh acknowledges in this moment, Moses, you're functioning for the one who is over me. As Israelites, they take off. The Egyptians give them stuff to go. Just take our stuff and go. We want you out of here. As the Israelites leave Egypt, God has redeemed them. He's bringing them to the place he has promised them. They have a cloud that leads them by day and fire by night. It's this cool picture that God has redeemed his people. But what happens to the Israelites so often throughout the scriptures is they begin to grumble and complain. And so you would think moving from slavery towards freedom, you would celebrate that. But what instead happens, they begin to grumble and complain. It is their great temptation. And while that's all happening, Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, you know what? Forget that, God. Those are my slaves. And I want them back because that's cheap labor. And so his army begins to pursue them. And here's what we find in the text from Exodus chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, 
Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I have some sympathy for the Israelites, by the way, because um, in Egypt, from, from like where Cairo and some of those places would be, where the Israelites would be probably in like the Memphis area, all the way to Israel is desert. And I don't mean like a little bit of desert. I mean like all you see is sand and rock and no trees for as far as you can see for miles and miles and miles. It is barren. And you would see if an army was pursuing you, you could easily see the dust that would rise up behind. And so if you're the Israelites looking back behind you and you see the dust everywhere, you're going to go, what? This army's coming after us? Moses, what are we going to do? We don't have any weapons. We're just like people walking in the wilderness with our families. We've got children and women. What's going on here? What are you doing to us? You should have just left us there. At least we would have died with a grave. Now we're just going to die in the sand. And he looks at them and he says, don't be afraid. Have faith. God is the one who delivers you. You don't even have to do anything except trust in him. And so Moses raises his staff. The Red Sea splits. People walk across. And the Egyptians find themselves in the same space, and the waters come back, and the Egyptians die. It's kind of a gruesome story, actually. In fact, in rabbinic tradition, what they say is that God weeps for his Egyptian children. i got to be honest with you, there's stories in the Old Testament that we don't know what to do. There's stories from the ancient world that we don't always know what to say to them. But here's what we've come to believe in the Christian faith. It's why we reread all of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, in light of Jesus. So I understand these stories in light of who he is and who he says that God is. It's why we begin to say, like, I can say nothing about who God is that I can't say about Jesus. And so we begin to understand. We don't always know the right answers for what we see some of this kind of vengeful violence in the Old Testament. We don't know what to do with that. But we do know who Jesus says he is and what he desires to do in the world. And so this is the reality for us. God always wants to redeem and to save his people. But how quickly they save them, right? They've passed through the Red Sea, the army who was pursuing them, they are no more. And how quickly they complain and they grumble against God. By the way, we're going to talk next week. It's kind of, I think it's only cool, like, because I didn't experience it. Um, that all the people who grumbled against God, like, they just die in the wilderness. They don't get to go to the promised land. So, complaining and grumbling gets you death. So, maybe if you're a complainer and a grumbler, knock it off. Just going to point that out. Did you just bring it out here to die? Right? They've been freed from slavery. They find themselves going in a new direction. They've experienced oppression, and yet you would think gratitude to God would be their heart. But it isn't. Here's what we find, again, from Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt... In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out in the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. People are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that's to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. I get it, don't you? You're hungry, you're tired. You want a place to call home. It's barren. There's nothing on the ground. Sand everywhere. It's hot. And you just want a normal sense of life. This sacrifice is not worth it, is it? I mean, we were slaves. Slavery wasn't so bad, right? I mean, I couldn't get up when I wanted. I couldn't eat what I wanted. I couldn't eat when I wanted. But it wasn't so bad. It was okay. But one of the things that's kind of cool about the scriptures is they often will retell a story from a different perspective and from another chapter. And so we see this same story from Numbers chapter 11. Here's what we find, beginning with verse 4. The rabble, by the way, I just love that phrase, the rabble or the crowd or the people, right? The rabble with them began to crave other food, right? Because manna wasn't good enough. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. At no cost? You're right. It was your whole life. You were a slave at no cost. Right? It didn't cost you money, but you had to give your very self. At no cost also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I found favor in your eyes, do, let, do not let my face, do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. 
tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We are better off in Egypt. And the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month. Until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? That's a really good line. You're going to eat it until it comes out of your nostrils. This sounds like the parent definitely says to a child who's complaining about their food. Fine, you want this? You're going to have it every day for the rest of your life. Never say anything like that to my kids. But I was thinking, like, how long realistically, if you asked our kids last week, someone was saying, like, are you guys hungry? They were, they were doing the same story last week, by the way. And um, how long do you think you guys go without food? Oh, we're so hungry right now. It's been 25 minutes. Honestly, how long could you go? I think I fasted four days is the longest I've ever gone. I was pretty hungry by the end. Right? I've got a couple of my house that they get hangry. Like, they're not even hungry and angry. They're just both together. It's a bad combo. Like, get them food. I, mean, I don't know. What, what do you like? What, let's, let's be honest. How, far, how long do you think you go? And I was like, I, I could probably go realistically. If I thought it was an end in sight, I could go three days still walking and be okay. Three days. That's the most I gave myself. And I feel like that was kind of generous. How far could you go? Maybe you can get four. Maybe you can get five. Maybe you're honest like, hm, about lunch? I can miss breakfast, but I can't miss lunch. That's too much. I hear these people walking in the wilderness... They have a vague idea where they're going. They know what they have left. They don't really know what the promised land is. They know God freed them. They know they were slaves and couldn't do what they wanted to do. They know they had no control over their life. But yet, here they are, complaining. Food's not good enough. I know I can eat, but it's just not good enough, God. Do you know what we had in Egypt? We had such good food. It was so free. I mean, I wasn't free at all. I was oppressed and I was enslaved and I couldn't do anything I wanted to do. And I didn't get to worship you even. I just had to do what Pharaoh said. But it was so much better back there. And I was like, God, these people. Right? And I would love to say, yep, those people. What about you? I can't believe people be like that towards God. He loved them and he set them free. And they're like, oh, I just want to go back to that. But rather, here's the reality for you and I. Um, it's easy to think we would respond differently, but we really don't. Here's what I mean. There are things we have been set free from or know we should be set free from. We know there's a way to walk in freedom in our life, to come out of a place of where we have been slaves, an exodus out of something, but yet we so often don't choose it. Here are some areas where maybe this is true in your life. We often don't choose freedom in the midst of relationships. We'll choose abusive relationships or we'll act abusive towards others. Why? Because it's what we know. It's easier than changing. I'll just be abusive. Or I'll receive abuse because I, I just don't know any better. Right? But it's harder than what could happen. I, just don't, I don't want to take the risk. It happens in terms of addictions. Whether it be substance. Or sexual. Or even like consumer. Like we just have to have more stuff. Right? It just makes us feel comfortable or safe or in control. Often addictions are about the idea that we know we really don't have control, but I feel like I can have control over this, and so I'll have this to feel something different or have control over what this is. It happens in jobs. We'll stay in positions and places because it's just comfortable and easy, even if we're taking advantage of it. At some level, we'll just stay because it's easy. 
It happens in terms of like healthy lifestyles or food, right? We, we do one of two things sometimes, right? We, we don't see food as like a gift of God and things that can fuel us. We see it as the enemy and so we'll avoid it and there'll at least all kinds of like image issues because of food. Or we'll do the opposite. We'll worship food and we just have to have more all the time and all that we can have. And we just consume more and more, right? We find that rather than keeping it like in the middle, it's probably intended for us to be something to be enjoyed, but it's for fuel for life. It becomes either an idol in which we worship or a thing we despise as evil, but it isn't. These are things in which we look at, honestly, we begin to see, you know what? You're right. Yeah, there are things that I probably need to be rescued from, but I just want to go back to that way of life because it was easier. I felt like I had more control over that. At least I knew what I was getting into. This whole idea of surrender to God, to let him take my and lead my life, that's harder. I don't know what the other side looks like. Right? I know what this is. This is comfortable. I at least can live with this and know what this is. And then there's this picture that, you know what? God wants to free us from the things that have enslaved us. And so for all of us, at some level, sin has enslaves us. And maybe it's seen in the way we are fearful. We long for security. We, we do all kinds of things that make sure we're secure. But that's, that's really another thing of fear. Or maybe for us, it's the way in which other things hold us captive. Whatever they might be. Maybe we're just so concerned about what other people may think of us that it's, it's like a straitjacket that I'm afraid to be myself and who God's created me to be. And then there's a picture of this Passover in which God desires to redeem and paint a new picture. And so if we jump to the New Testament, we see the story of Jesus. And a couple nights before he's betrayed, or the night before he's betrayed, and a couple nights before he's executed, he finds himself gathering with his disciples. And they gather for a meal to celebrate the Passover. And they're celebrating this idea that God not only has redeemed the people then, but he continues to redeem the people now. And then Jesus, what he says through this kind of picture for us, is he becomes the lamb without spot or blemish that offers freedom from those who have been enslaved. It's a different kind of freedom, not that frees us the bondage that we might be in physically, but frees us from everything that holds us captive in our own heart. And he comes to set us free because he is the one who offers this transformed, renewed life where our heart is so radically changed. Where we begin to see the world differently. We get to walk out of the thing that's enslaved us through our own exodus to a new story, walking into the very kingdom of God here and now. And here's what's hard for that, to change our hearts, right? It's really easy to change, like, our location. Have you noticed this? Like, you can go to a different place. By the way, I love that you're at church this morning. That's an awesome thing. Um, it's a great rhythm of our life. It's helpful. But, but there's one of the things that sometimes happens for us. We can go to church every single Sunday. Some, some of you, like, never miss, and maybe this is true for you. I hope not. And people talk about, oh, those, those Christians are just such hypocrites. Well, here's why people say that. Because we can go to church every Sunday, and our hearts never change. Because we're not really willing to surrender anything to God. We're not willing to sacrifice anything or lay anything down or really give every aspect of our life to him. And so, so we just continue to be enslaved by the Egyptians, whoever the Egyptians in our life are. We're enslaved by Pharaoh. Because the reality of what we see with the Israelites is they could leave Egypt. They left that place. That was not that hard, honestly. But their hearts were still in Egypt. So every time life got hard, they go, oh, if only we could go back to Egypt. If only we could go back to that place. If only I could go back to what I already knew. Because this idea of walking into the new thing that God has for me, it requires full surrender and letting go of everything in the past and trusting the goodness of God is greater than I ever could have imagined. And so I don't know that I really want to do that. 
So it was easy to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It was hard to get the Egypt out of the Israelites. But what about you and I today? Maybe there really is an Egypt in our life. Maybe there's something that's holding us captive. It's, an, it's just got its tentacles wrapped around us, and we need to be free. And Jesus comes to say to you and I, you can be free from that. Or maybe today, you know God's freed you from that, but man, you keep looking back with longing for what it used to be, and, and you know if you're not careful, you're going to be just like the Israelites in the wilderness, longing for what you used to know. We had pots of meat there, we were, and we didn't cost us anything. I mean, it cost me everything, but it didn't cost me anything. And maybe there's something in your life today that you find that if you aren't careful, you're going to try to go back to what you used to know, the thing that has enslaved you before because it's comfortable. Or maybe today, and this one, we really don't like to acknowledge this one if it's us. Maybe we've become Pharaoh in our own story. We're the God of our life. We're the main character in everything that we do and everything that we say. And we're the, we're the Pharaoh, we're, we're the God of our story, the God of our life. And the idea that I'm going to surrender to anyone or do anything anyone else wants me to do, there's zero chance that's going to happen. The truth is, when we live like that, we're just like Pharaoh, we're no different. What we begin to see in the person of Jesus is he wants to say this, that I don't care if you find yourself stuck in Egypt. I don't care if you find yourself wandering in the wilderness longing for what you used to know. And I don't care if you feel like you're Pharaoh of your own story. You can come to know a freedom that sets you free from captivity, not just physically, but it can let your heart go. You can walk out of something, you can walk into something. You can walk out of slavery and you can walk into the freedom of coming to know God. You can leave the Egypts of the world behind and you can walk in and live in this moment as if you're a part of God's kingdom here and now. He doesn't desire for us to wander in the wilderness, but to come to his table that offers his grace and his love and his mercy. And just like Moses, right, he wants to take us out of this place to heal us, to restore us, and send us back so that we too can be the people who bring people out of slavery, out of exile, into a place that's flowing with milk and honey. Or said differently, God wants to so take us, take us out of the Egypts of our life, give us an exodus in our story, and he wants to use us to redeem others in the same. And so the night Jesus betrayed, he gathers the disciples together to celebrate this God who redeems all those that are broken, who rescues people from slavery. And as they gather around the table together, he said this, like, I'm going to offer you a new exodus journey, a new way out of slavery, because right, we all know we left Egypt, but as a people, we've kept trying to be like Egypt. We've tried to oppress other people. We've tried to control them. We've tried to not see them as people created in God's divine image. And so and rather than us just become this new kind of people, there's this new nation that, that repeats all the sins of Egypt, I'm going to set your heart free. I'm going to offer you this, that you can come to my table, this table. Every time you do this in remembrance of me, you can come to the table. You can receive this gift, my broken body, my shed blood, so that you can know the depth of God's love for you, that you've been created to be redeemed and restored and live as God's unique people in the world. And so every time you come to this table, may you remember my grace for you. May you remember that wherever you find yourself stuck in Egypt, enslaved, oppressed, trapped in something in your life. Every time you find yourself in this position where you're like, ah, is it worth it? Do I really want to live as a follower of Jesus? Is his love and his grace really that good? 
They want to walk out of slavery and walk into his kingdom here and now. And you and I are invited to come to his table this morning to receive his grace that extends to us. I don't know where you find yourself today. But in just a moment, I'll pray, and someone will come and help with communion, and then we'll sing a song together. But, but as we do those things, if you want to take whatever posture it is for you, between you and God this morning, to say, God, I don't want to be Pharaoh in my own story. I don't, I don't want to be held captive in my fear or my control. I want to fully surrender to you, and I, I, don't, want, I don't want to leave a certain place but still know that my heart's not right. I want to be a people who have a heart, right heart. And so, Father, will you help me today to live as a follower of you above all things? And so I will surrender whatever it is I need to surrender to you to do that today. I don't know what it is for you. I jokingly said with one of the guys yesterday, like, uh, for me, it's like letting go of some of the competitive nature of my life and surrendering that. And it's a struggle at times. I don't know what it is for you that you need to surrender, but for you and I, maybe we need to surrender something to become all that God has for us so that our heart can be made right, so that we're not in love with Egypt, even though we're not there anymore. But so we can be freed from those things that have enslaved us and we can move to the very kingdom of God here and now. We pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for the moments in which we have gathered here today, for the way in which you invite us to come to your table, to know the depth of your love. And so this morning, Father, we pray that you would help us to be your unique people. That somehow in these moments this morning, that as we come to your table, that you would open our eyes and our ears to whatever it is we need to leave behind, and that somehow you might use us. We might become a transformed people. And just like Moses, as you have redeemed us and freed us, that you would send us back to the places we have been so we can help bring others to the place where they too can learn to walk in your kingdom here and now. So Father, this morning, no matter where we find ourselves, may we receive your grace. May we recognize the gift that it is to receive communion this morning. May you help us to realize that in our taking of these elements, what we're saying is that you are Lord of all and that you are Lord of our life. And so help us to become more and more that people, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.